Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. You can... <laughs> Sorry. Some, someone muted my, uh, my, my soft, on the software end. Don't do that. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you are watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion. Our second hour is usually something we spend a little more time on, and we're really excited today about having the whole team uh, from, uh, from our... Well, not the whole team. There's massive team, but some of the team uh, from actually office hours itself and, uh, and the, the, the entire back-end team. You know, there's a huge development team that actually puts together office hours, and it's a lot more complicated than you think. You might think that it's a, a basic little, uh, you know, Zoom meeting or whatever, but it's a lot more than that. We're going to show you more about that in the second hour. Uh, and let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Bill, what do we have? First one comes from Graham Cardwell in Belfast, Northern Ireland. And Graham says, I've been successfully using the free version of WeTransfer for some time, but am now at the stage where my file sizes are often over its limit of two gigabytes. What other options should I look at when considering a paid-for transfer service? Go ahead, Jonas. I mean, you could use something like Google Drive or OneDrive, but we found that they are not the best at transferring large files. So like, especially when you talk about much more than two gigabytes, that's where all of these typical file so, uh, sharing services um, start to collapse because they're really built for uh, multiple small files being uploaded, like a bunch of images, a bunch of small videos, a bunch of that type of um, footage. So I would look at Frameo, it's not that expensive. For like 15 bucks, you get the one pro account. And that's what I've been using. You can easily share and then you get sucked in. That's what we've been using for easy file sharing. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, Graham, what I would recommend doing, it, because you're using WeTransfer now successfully, just pay for it. You're gonna, you know it, it's going to be comfortable. That's going to be the easiest next step up. The other thing that I'd like to say about all transfer um, systems is that just because it's easy on your end doesn't mean it's necessarily easy for the person receiving the files. Um, one of them, I think it's Google Drive or something. One of them, it's like nearly impossible to download like a whole bunch of files. And as an editor, quite often I'm sent a whole bunch of files all at once. And some of them are just an absolute nightmare. Another one to look at, though, if you want to get like more high-endy, uh, and I just was uh, introduced to this a couple of months ago. It's called Massive, M-A-S-V, I think, uh, .com. And uh, super fast, it gives you the ability to bond together multiple, upload, uh, multiple um, paths if you have multiple paths out of your location. Uh, but it's, it's worth looking at, Massive, M-A-S-V. But Graham, for your situation, I would just pay for the, the pro version of uh, uh, WeTransfer. Right, go ahead, Bill. For a long time, I had migrated into the Frame.io system, and they had a system called Transfer that they coded about, I guess, halfway through the time that I used them a lot. And it parallels your uploads and downloads, and I increase bandwidth tremendously because it really saturates whatever connection you have. Uh, when Adobe bought them, I started, I started using them less and less because I'm not an Adobe subscriber, and I didn't want to be too much over there. They work uh, in fairness, Frame.io works even if you're not an Adobe subscriber, but I felt like that's what they were going to be developing for. So I looked around and there's another service called Altion, which I've talked a little bit about here, and it does the same kind of thing. It allows for faster block transfers of big files, 
and that's what I'm using now. Uh, but boy, it is a logjam breaker if you get into one of these services that are really optimized for saturating your bandwidth up and down, and it makes my life a whole lot easier. I have the same problem Chris does. Too many files from clients that I have to download. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Bill, um, so in moving away from Frame, are you still using Frame for reviews, or have you tried some of the other services? Altion has that review system as well. It has the same kinds of things, and I've been interested because they're kind of an Apple. They're very friendly Apple. They also do other services. I'm not all of these transfer services that I think want to get the biggest audience they can. But there are some things. For example, they've just at Altion announced USDZ as one of the formats they support for transferring files. That to me was pretty future looking, and it kind of makes me feel comfortable that they're looking. Looking at what Apple's doing specifically in that case, because they just announced their big USDZ uh, because of the goggles initiative, and it tells me that they're looking downstream. Again, there are other services. There are quite a few services that do these big file transfers. But if you have some, if you're doing something like video work and you have a lot of video files you have to transfer, any of these services that really saturate your bandwidth are worth their weight in platinum, in my opinion. Yeah, I. I uh... In addition to being able to download it, being able to get reviews and so on and so forth on it is pretty important to me. As a result, you know, I use, I've been using Frame.io for a long time, you know, almost since it came out. And, um, you know, I, it goes up and down on how much I use it and how many checks I send to, to Emory. <laughs> so anyway, but, uh, or how big those checks are. But, um, but I think that uh, I, I uh, it's really hard to compete with what it does for what it does. You know, being able to, to get, sent, I mostly use it for reviews. So I upload the things because people can put the review files in. So if I'm just doing file transfer, there's probably a lot of other things, but I need the reviews. And I find um, pretty much, I haven't, and we're having Altion on again to take a look at it. So it's definitely something we're interested in, um, you know, from a, you know, from, from that perspective of putting something in the cloud. There's a lot, there's other things that we're using also to, sync everybody together and, and so on and so forth. But um, Frame.io has been kind of core to what I do for a, a long time. Uh, I would, you know, what I, I can tell you what you should not use is don't ever use Google, uh, Google Drive or Dropbox. Those are just disasters in production. Like they're just, they just, you're just putting a stake into your production and then just making it jer jer jerk around. Like it's just a horrible, they're horrible platforms for production. Like that's the only thing I'll say there. <laughs> but the other ones are all, you can do a lot of other things. Go ahead, Bill. I'm going to support that. I just ha I'm, I'm right in the middle of a Dropbox set, and I keep getting your. You've maximized the amount oh we'll let you download, and I have to wait 24 hours to restart my downloads. That drives me insane. The other thing I was going to say is that I had a big win about four years ago when using Frame.io, and that was that I was also taking a lot of content that I had up on Frame and moving it to uh, my Vimeo Pro account because that was the public facing. Mm -hmm that fed the videos into websites and things like that. And I went to transfer a huge video thinking it was going to take a couple hours and I clicked it and they said, we're done. And I realized the <laughs> they, yeah, the service, whether it was AWS yeah. or one of the big cloud services were plumbed into both services and they just had to set a little flag and suddenly my video was over there. No time at all. It was ah, fabulous. And, and to be fair, I use Google Drive for other things, and I use Dropbox for other things. But there's nothing like saying, I don't do this very often, like sending a G Drive a link to your client. Uh, next question. Next question comes from David Brady in New York City. Are there any simple-to-implement methods to extract Zoom username in order to generate lower thirds in products we're aware of, be it Mimo Live, SPX, and so forth? Tlaloc? So the, I think the for me... 
in my mind, the simplest is just Zoom OSC and Isadora, and then sending um, a uh, sending a uh, URL command out of Isadora. It's there's no code. It's just super super simple, and you come out of the Active Speaker um, handle uh, coming out of Zoom OSC, and then it'll switch your lower third um, appropriately. Um, Others have found it pretty simple to use. do with Companion. Uh, I find Companion hard to kind of wrap my brain around sometimes. But Companion, I know that uh, um, Sergeant, I can't remember his first name all of a sudden, uh, did a whole bunch of work with that, with Zoom OSC into Companion and then, and then out. Um, and uh, 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 that's got... Go ahead, go ahead, Jonas. Yeah, so there's a couple options. Um, Sumo see most of the time is the best way to get it out. There's also um, Social Ninja from the creator of Video Ninja, a way that allows you to extract uh, some of the chat and some of the names. And then if you go to github.com slash ohglobal, you find the Zoom chat proxy, which is one of, uh, it's an open source app I've written that allows you to um, have OSC talk, Zoom OSC talk to it, and it gives you the active speaker. It gives you all the panelists. You can get that as a JSON, so you import it directly into vMix, into SPXs, and all the typical graphics systems that have a JSON input. And then you can also um, have it push automatically um, into HR graphics. It has a great HR graphics integration. And then on the companion build that uh, Talak mentioned, um Hasmuk did a little video after I showed him how to do it with HR. I've, I'm not sure if he uses HR graphics or Memo Live or what he uses currently, but with Companion, we set it up how um, where it's automated. So it pushes in the lower third as soon as active speaker changes and all that. Um, he did a little video tutorial on that, and I'm sure you'll find it on Discord somewhere. Next question. Jacob Goodnight comes in next from Indianapolis, Indiana. What are the panelists' thoughts on using the Sony a7C paired with the Sigma f1.4 prime lens as a full-frame webcam setup? The a7C seems to be the most cost-effective Sony full-frame camera. Go ahead, Tim. Uh, first of all, you're going to have a great image off of that, but you left off uh, a uh, an important thing, like what millimeter lens are you thinking about using? So... You're going to need to go to probably a 23 or 35 millimeter, I would say, if it's a webcam. Um, and um, you're going to want to actually make sure that you're always in focus. So you might even not need that 1.4, maybe, but uh, because it's a good autofocus. But you might even need just a 2.8 to make all that work for you where, where you're in focus. But with a full frame, the background would still be quite a bit out of focus, I would say. Um, so... Um, yeah, it's a good choice. Um, also, if, are you going to be picking it up off of the the mount and using it around um, the universe, or is it just going to stay in that one place? Uh, it's going to stay in that one place. You got to evaluate if that cost is really a smart thing, or if you can maybe get by with a little bit less money there. Yeah, the um, uh, well, that, I think that that is the that might be the least expensive. Is that the? I think that's the least expensive full frame sensor that I've seen. Um, you know, at that, you know, I think that that might be, so as far as cost goes, I think that's a pretty, I think it's $1,500 or $1,600. I think that's a pretty, pretty good deal. I'm very curious. It's got a micro HDMI out. 
I'm very curious as to whether it, you know, how it handles heat. Typically, the problem for the lower end uh, cameras that Sony's made is is heat, you know, so um, and whether it will stay on. But it's a pretty interesting camera at that price um, for a full frame. Uh, next question. Next one comes from John Fultz in Ceilings Grove, Pennsylvania. Could someone explain the cinematic mode on iPhone cameras? What's it for and when do you use it? Go ahead, Courtney. Well, when you're shooting horizontal, first of all, not vertical portrait. And second of all, what it does is, is it uses on the newer iPhones that have the depth sensor on them, the LiDAR, the depth sensor uh, on it. It uh, does a, um, a calculated version uh, using... Uh, math to to give you a shallower depth of field so uh, people in the foreground if you want to set the focus on them you can tap on them and it will blur uh, digitally blur some of the background to make it look more cinematic and make it look like a shallow depth of field or a larger sensor than you're really using and you can then shift focus during the shot by tapping on somebody in the background and since it has that depth map it knows which areas of the frame to blur for foreground and background and then can shift to the background so it gives you the look of uh, you know a focus puller pulling focus and gives you a much more dramatic look it also uses uh uh, I think it uses the Dolby HDR uh, uh, contrast range, so it gives you a, a little a little more uh, contrast and boosts it up and lets you have di- high dynamic range in your photography. I go, Bill. Courtney pretty much nailed it. It you know I, we've been hearing about computational photography for a long time. This is the beginnings of computational techniques used in video rather than just photography and. It, it's a cool look. It doesn't look exactly the same as using the right lens and getting that beautiful bokeh on the back. But it's a, it's a solid thing if you lo- want that shallow depth of field look to, for example, focus on the person and blur the background that might be distracting behind them. Yeah, it, I think that if you want it to kind of look like film, it, it can. It, and, and what's interesting about it is, is that, uh, that it's keeping all that data. It's not really um, doing it. So it's, you know, it, it, and again, I wouldn't use this in, I don't think I would use this in production. I know Apple Apple sells it as something you could build a cinematic film with, but this is not. This is making your home videos look like production, not your production looking like production. And so there won't there won't be the the dynamic range. There won't be a lot of other things. You'll find that the blur breaks up in some cases. So don't 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 sell it too hard uh, to your clients <laughs> to use it. But it's really fun to do with your family and kids to make it look more look better. Remember that it's keeping all of that metadata in the in the frame. So you can go back and say, I want to focus on this person. Now I want to focus on that person. And it can do these rack focuses later. And there's some great videos about that in WWDC this year. So um, definitely take a look at that as well. Um, Next question. Steve Uroff in Madison, Wisconsin. Up next, what's the most streamlined way to attach a Behringer BD440 mic to an iPhone? Would it require XLR to mini XLR adapter solving for minimalist, simple setup for walk around use? I don't know if the Behringer is probably the most minimal setup that you could use. Uh, it is a, it's an, it's got a, I think it looks like it has a mini XLR that's there, but I don't know what the power it required is. It's condensers. So it's going to need some power, but I don't know whether it's 48 volt or it's electric. Um, I, you know, I'm not sure what that requires. I think you might find it easier to use, um, you know, one of the smaller ones that, that have just the, the, the 3.5 millimeter, uh, input and then find something that's going to go into the iPhone from there. Um, but I, I think that it's they're not connecting those kinds of mics. There are mics that are built and inputs that are built for the for the 
um, for the iPhone, you know, like iRig will have some things that, that you can put in there that, that are self-powered that can then power the mic. But be very careful of what the voltages are. When you get into these $50 mics, they, they may not be 48 volt. <laughs> they may be something else that's more creative. Uh, and so you want to be careful of what that looks like. Next question. Tim Holm in San Lorenzo, California is up next. And Tim says, for live PA use, what is, uh, that is for general use, live PA for general use, multiple people come up to use the microphone. What two mic choices would you recommend? Slala. So SM58 and SM58, in my opinion, you want a lot of off-axis rejection so that you can't, you don't end up with a feedback. I'm, I'm assuming, Tim, what you're talking about is, you know, audience participation kind of situation. And so yeah. you don't want, you know, there to happen to be a, a, an audience member that's near, near a speaker where you end up with a big feedback loop. So that, that would be my opinion. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Well, you can do like the president does and, and use a pair of SM57s. It's one less than the 58 with the, uh, <laughs> with the uh, WMZ uh, windscreens on it. The ones in the middle here are the lowest profile windscreen. And when they have a windy day, they go with the big ones here on the right. Uh, but a pair of 57s on this Y mount. And the nice thing about this is if you have it on a stock and there's two microphones on it, people will be less inclined to grab it and manhandle it which it always generates noise and creates feedback. So if there's two up there, they're less likely to do it. They also sure also makes a stock microphone on a gooseneck. And a lot of times you'll see these on podiums where they're cross mounted like this so that you have a little wider, uh, they're, they're cardioid microphones. So they help eliminate some of the feedback. But if the person wanders off to the left or wanders off to the right, or there's two people that come up to the microphone, uh, it's easier to mic two people that way uh, if they're speaking into the single uh, or pair of microphones at the same point. Tim, what are you trying to use it for? Yeah, so this basically is people just uh, on a, um, like a worship team in a house of worship. Uh, so a lot of times you'll have different people come up or someone else without take a mic and speak into it. Um, and I've actually found... Um, SM58 I've used for many, many years as well. Um, low handling noise and just so rugged. But the new one that I'm loving actually is the SE Electronics V7. Um, that mic is like a Beta 58, I would say. Um, it's pretty rugged, pretty hyper uh, cardioid. It might be super, I'm not sure. Um, and low handling noise. And it's it's a nice, bright uh, mic that's very forgiving. But uh uh, I think that's the one they used to, to uh, sing Sarswick, uh, the uh, national anthem in the Super Bowl. So it's a great all-around mic for, for pretty low money. That's great. Bill? Some good good things. I've used over the course for interview mics in this kind of circumstance, purely for voice. EV's 635, I always ordered the long version. They usually come in short and long, and it's much easier for a, an amateur who doesn't get a mic a lot. If you hand it to them with their hand on the bottom, that'll keep them from literally having their fist in front of their mouth. Also, the Bayer M58 worked really well for me for a lot of years. So there's a lot of good dynamic, long-handled, reporter interview mics uh, that fit this kind of profile. Next question. Bo Cordell in Charleston, South Carolina. It's been a while since we've talked about gear for our work boxes. If you could only throw three pieces of kit in your Pelican case before going out to a gig, what would they be? Go, Jonas. I think I would for sure pack in a Blackmagic Video Assist because that's like suddenly can do everything. Um, 
a laptop and a Peplink router. Because I know uh, with all of those things, I can go live in worst case or record the live show. If I would have a fourth, I would put like a DGH1 camera into it. Because then I know if the production all falls apart, I can produce a live stream. But Go ahead, Richard. Yeah, um, likewise with, with Jonas. It, it, it can depend, obviously, upon the type of job, but a laptop, an audio interface, and um, usually a light uh, would be kind of my three top ones. Um, basically, if the audio interface mix pre, a light for me would be a, one of the light panels, depending upon the size. There's lots of small ones, there's lots of big ones. Um, if I had more options, then I would add cameras and things like that. But those would be, if I'm stuck to three, those would be the three. And and um, for, for me, I think that I'm I'm thinking about things that I throw in that will fix things. <laughs> so so if if I'm doing that, I would use a video assist. A decimator is usually something that I, that we used to give every person that worked work that worked for me. You'd have a decimator in your bag, and if we had a big crew and there was a lot of people, there'd be a lot of decimators floating around, and we'd fix things with that. Um, yeah, some kind of video assist. A lot of times, I use a Pix. It's got big batteries on the back and it's old and it works um, really well. Um, but uh, but some kind of portable video screen that you can, that's battery operated that you can just plug things into. And then um, a, some kind of um, tone generator slash, um, you know, audio. Um, and I, I had it around here. I don't know why I don't have it here right in front of me, but um, that, that that's pretty useful as well. I right, go ahead, Talon. So... This is going to sound super weird and a little over the top, but after having purchased um, this 6K Pro for the, or not, it's not a Pro, just the 6K, probably for the wrong reasons, like to use as a webcam. <laughs> um, I I I have it with me all the time because, as as a lot of folks know, I travel, and it be, it is a really important part of my work now because when I'm doing projection design, um, I often use it to to capture things to use for my projection design, which I never had that kind of quality before. And uh, I, I'll never look back. It's always with me. Next question. Next one comes to us from Todd Perry in Prescott, Arizona. Do we see a future where all these past lower quality phone photos get an AI prompt like treatment, such as enhance matching a a7 4 and a 50 millimeter at f1.4 will this be accepted for family photos or perceived as ai generated history go jonas so it's interesting uh mid journey already released a thing where you can uh, let it describe a picture and then you can take that and bring it back into um mid journey now, there's this other thing um do this and Maybe this video real quick. So this is interesting because this is a camera that doesn't have a lens. So what it does is it has a GPS tracker in it. And you can tell it how many meters away from that point are you, like what seat, what guide. Um, and then you press a shutter and now it uses one of those uh, AI models and generates a picture from there, from that location without ever seeing the location. And it's really cool. Um, they have a website now as well where you can like put your uh, location. That's just freaky. It's it's a really cool <laughs> art project. I'm calling fake. There's no way that's real. Somebody printed that in their printer that's at a, home. That, you've been punked. Go ahead, Court, Courtney. 
Yeah, there are uh, uh, AI sharpening filters you can buy. Topaz Labs, I think, has some that uh, you know can do things like this. It can take older pictures that uh, are less sharp and then sharpen them. Uh, a lot of times this uh, results in, uh, since it may not know the difference between foreground and background, it'll just sharpen everything. So if you had something that has something more blurry than the foreground or, you know, you've got lower resolution, it may degrain it, sharpen it, and then add the green back in. Uh, if you use AI to correct your old uh, photographs, you may end up uh, looking like uh, Tom Cruise because all the deep fakes that are floating around on the on the internet are all of Tom Cruise for some reason. Because why not? Go ahead, John. Yeah, the answer is yes. And notice that you didn't hear Apple say AI anywhere on their on WWDC. That machine learning, machine learning, machine learning. I suspect you'll see some of these features in the iPhone 15 when it's announced in September. And it's uh, paragraphics is what Jonas was showing. And it is, uh, it looks really fascinating. If it's a, if it's a fake, it's a really, really well done one. Like it's, you know, the, you know, the, uh, I think that it, it could be, I mean, it could be just something that's a little bit of, uh, what does that red squid on the front of it? I don't know. Do? It looks great. It's fake. It's it looks, odd. Looks Did so it come out on or around April 1st? That's what I want to no, know. It didn't. Like it I just June took 1st. an image with it from my location and it looks surprisingly accurate. You took an image from your location. How do you, you mean you? So you go to the website, you can buy a roll of film for like $2, and you have 36 <laughs> images. And then on there, you, it takes the location of where you are. And then you can say style photo, which year. So like you can say 50 years ago or in 50 years and how high it should be. And then it starts generating that image. So Jonas, I, I have a beautiful beachfront house right near John's house in Las Vegas if you'd like to buy it. Awesome. I think it's pretty interesting. Yeah, because all it needs to know is the information and where I think that what it's what it's probably doing is saying you have this information, you're pointed this direction. And I, you know, from all the photos on the internet of that location. So it probably works really well in some places and not very well in others. But I bet you if you're in a in a busy street, I mean I can see how it would work. You know, like with GPS information inside of inside of photos, it could it could accumulate an enormous amount of information and shoot something reasonably good. Um, it'd be very interesting. I have to admit that I've started generating all of my uh, all of my uh, lock screens with Midjourney. You know, so I make lots and lots of lock screens. I went from having like three lock screens to like fifty, and um, and and I'm you can't tell that they're not photographs <laughs> like, like of, of some of them some of them are are, are uh, you can't tell they're not picasso you know you know but but it, uh, you know obviously if you know what picasso looks like you can but but it's it's a uh it's a pretty crazy thing yeah next question tim holmes san lorenzo california here on the panel does anyone know the status of the availability for the obsbot tiny 2 osbot tiny 2 uh, go ahead richard uh, well, if you've already pre-ordered it, they should be shipping, uh, because mine says it's shipping, um, though its delivery date was today, and it hasn't left Hong Kong. So the status is, hasn't left Hong Kong. <laughs> Go ahead, Tim. Yeah, I pre-ordered it as well. Uh, it's been a fiasco as far as uh, pre-order mail-outs. Uh, they've had several updates on their Facebook page and things, uh, but they said yesterday, everyone that has been pre-ordered is now shipped and coming to us. But the tracking orders that they usually email people is a mess, and they'll get the tracking number out to me soon. Um, and then general public can order it as of uh, June 20th. So hopefully we'll have some in our hands pretty soon to test. 
Next question. Next one comes to us from Douglas Carmichael. Douglas says, I spent some time with my 15-inch MacBook Air as a possible successor to my 17-inch quad-core Intel MacBook Pro, and it felt almost perfectly proportioned. Would you trust using a 15-inch MacBook Air in production, even though it is fanless? Go, Jonas. I mean, I would say no, but that has nothing to do with it being fanless. Um, and I don't know if on macOS you can do the same than on Windows. We disable all the turbo boosting on certain machines that we know we're going to fly close to uh, what the processor can do and what the thermal limit is. And then it's certainly fine. And then just make sure that you manage load really well. Uh, with the Mac system, it gets really hard to manage that now because there's so many integrated integrations like you start to ISO and suddenly someone drops from 1080p to 720p. You wouldn't think of that as a big thing. And now, but now a scaler gets engaged and uses another scaling process. If now your encoding software also needs a scaler, suddenly that is CPU bound again. So do it in the exact same way. And then uh, it will be fine, but make sure that you keep it on a low CPU usage. Good, Bill. I don't know about the 16-inch uh, particularly, but I have a 14-inch MacBook Air that I've been using recently. Oh, I thought I could get the screaming up, but I don't think I have it. Uh, anyway, it's been amazingly not hot. There is no fan. I bought it for the voice booth so that I didn't have to worry about fan noise. And it seems to run quite cool. So whatever they did for their fanless operation inside and keeping heat under control, it appears as if the M2 chips are, are pretty efficient and not particularly heat generating. At least that's been my experience with this new chipset. Yeah, I mean, I think that if you're doing casual production, I think it's fine. I think if you're doing, if you're gonna do a lot of rendering, you're gonna have a problem. You know, it's going to slow down. Like, and and it, it, you have to decide: Am I rendering all the time? Am I rendering a little bit? Am I pushing the the CPU hard? Um, I think that that's where you're gonna you're gonna have some challenges. A quick reminder that you can ask questions anytime during this first hour. So, if you've got questions, general questions, first hour is the the time to do it. Uh, so, go ahead and throw those questions in. And if you have questions for the second hour, how we actually produce office hours, go ahead and throw those into the second hour and tag them how OH works. Um, you can also vote on those questions so we know what order you'd like us to ask them in. All right, let's go to the next question. Chris Fenwick, Emeryville, California. Has anyone tried Dropbox Replay for video review? No. Have you, <laughs> have you, have you seen it or heard of it? No, I'm not interested. Like I, I have to admit, I'm just not interested in Dropbox. I just I find it to be kind of a a uh, just trashy. Go ahead, Bill. I'm really also pretty uh, twitchy about Dropbox, and and I for for this reason, I had it installed when it first came out for about a year and a half. I decided that I was having trouble with it and I wanted to take it out of my system. It was one of the most difficult to uninstall programs I've ever run across. I was digging down into the, the bowels of my machine to try to unhook stuff at almost the machine language area. I mean, until I got to an official uninstaller, I could not get rid of that thing for no matter what I did. I was throwing files away, rebooting, and it kept coming up and coming up and coming up. And at that point, I thought... I know they're trying to take control of resources so that everything works really fast at the core level, but I don't want something that, that's that and, attached to my computer. And my complaint is, is that their web page, I have a bunch of stuff still there, and, and I can't easily get it off. <laughs> like it's a lot of data, and I need to be able to grab whole sections, 
And the way that they've built it is obviously there to make sure that it's hard to get off, you know. And so, uh, so it's very, very difficult. And I've spent a lot of money with Dropbox just because I haven't been able to get all, you know, gigs and gigs and gigs of data off of their service. And so now I'm just bitter and angry and I won't use it. In fairness, I might be better now. It's probably, you know, it's, yeah. it's. So your main complaint is his, historical anger. Yeah, and 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 when you open it, there's all kinds of limits, and then there's and then when people when there's so many, how many times do we end up with some kind of error where you don't have permission to do this, and you don't? It's not just historical. It's like last week, someone sent me something in Dropbox that I couldn't download because I didn't have the right permissions, or I didn't have this right whatever. It's it's a constant problem both with Dropbox and Gmail or G Drive or whatever. There's just constant permission issues and constant. You know, um, you know, being able to not be able to download them correctly and constant, it's just a constant attack. And I, and I admit that once you're used to something like Frame.io, which costs a lot more money, you're just used to it working. <laughs> like, like you just open it up and it works and it does the thing you're going to, you expect it to do. And you're not used to having to deal with all the idiosyncrasies that all these other services have. Um, next question. Tim Holmes, San Lorenzo, right back again with what is the latest tech purchase you've made that you needed or wanted under 500 US dollars? Go ahead, Jonas. So, uh, sorry. go to the next one. Uh, go ahead, Antalik. Uh, um, yeah, so I purchased um, a monopod um, <laughs> around the time that we that we were doing Cinegear, and I really thought it was pretty great. And um, uh, it was only one hundred and twenty nine dollars. It worked really well. And it's from um, it's called Famel. Uh, Famal, F A M A L L on Amazon, uh, and it uh, it it uh, it was pretty good. Good, Courtney. Well, uh, I'm going to fudge because it's over five hundred dollars. It's ninety nine dollars over five hundred dollars. But I just bought. Uh, I pre pre ordered and have received, and I'm using now the Creality K1, which is a high speed uh, 3D printer that prints about eight to ten times faster than my current Ender 3 3D printers. So it's it's a great boon for turning out stuff uh, five times as much stuff in a shorter period of time. So it's good for that. Go, Tim. Um, yeah, I got the Wacom One um, that uh, I like pretty good. I got it for two ninety nine at uh, B and H. I bought a V-mount, a uh, small rig V-mount for a, a Rails this morning before the show because <laughs> I need it this weekend. And so I had to get it out before we, that's why I was a little j- joggled as I had to fix something with my, with my order this morning. But uh, anyway, but I needed it this weekend. So we ordered some of those. So that's the latest one because it's only minutes old. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael in next. Tlaluk, what did you think of the ETC EOS Apex consoles when you saw them at Cinegear? Are they a solid upgrade for the existing EOS users or are they targeting the hog grand MA market? Go ahead, Tlaluk. So I don't think they're necessarily targeting the, the hog grand MA market, um, but what it is, it is a really good upgrade uh, for the existing EOS uh, uh, users. Also, the DNA of Hog is sort of creeping its way into into the console, and certain things about how Hog works are starting to show up in, in EOS, um, which allows for better busking. And I think that you're not going to take a large concert show. Um, I, I immediately think of Eurovision, and and put it on an apex and have 
much success, I don't think, yet. Um, and you're also not going to have the programs or programmers are not going to enjoy that. What they want is to use what they use and know how to use it really, really well. It is it is a lot of money lost for any kind of relearning of how to how to do this stuff. It's got to be in that same ecosystem. So I don't think that you're necessarily trying to replace that other console. But I do think that you're taking what's what we learn from Hog and, and MA and combining it with what's beautiful about ETC. And um and and so I think in a, in a lot of ways it's a really good console. They're really expensive, but so are some of the other larger consoles. And um and so I think if you have if you need a console that can do busking, can do queuing, can do shows um and show control. I think Apex is really good because it kind of crosses both of those T's. Next question. Tommy Shanson, St. Paul, Minnesota. What do you what do I need to have to operate a pan tilt zoom camera and sound for broadcast remotely? Include comms. This is for a house of worship. Go, Jonas. You need a computer there, then you need access to it, ideally through something like Splashtop or Palsec. You need a way to get the multi-view back, so you need a capture card that takes it out of your video switcher into that PC. Then you can use Zoom or any other, uh, or a tool that is WebRTC-based, so you have a low-latency multi-view. Then for comms, what I have done in the past, if it's only one or two operators on comms that need to interface with... uh, the on-site crew, I also do that through that PC. At my church, we use uh, Mumble for all of our uh, comms because every operator has Mumble on their phone. So I just pipe the Zoom audio into Mumble, but where if I talk to into Zoom, I can uh, hear that directly. Um, then for the, the sound switching, it depends on what console you have. Um, if you have any console that's avail- uh, compatible with a mixing station, I would download mixing station. Put that on there and then use a way to do remote MIDI. I've done that with, I've written a little program for that. And then you can just plug in your MIDI controller locally. Um, I use a Behringer X Touch that works really well. Uh, you even get the sound levels. Um, and then for the PTZ operation, you need to think about church services are often repetitive enough that you can make it work with presets. So probably companion would be enough. Um, we have tunneled out uh, PTZ connections really successfully with Cloudflare tunnels. That way you might've noticed I didn't say a VPN because I know that sometimes that can be pretty hard for our church. We're like triple natted till I get to the PC where I need to go at. And like it's a whole process of getting a pod open and you honestly don't want a pod open to that network where you're still running older systems. Um, yeah, so that's what I would do. Um, reach out to me on Discord if you need help with it. Uh, I've done it quite a lot. Go to Lana. I I really had a good answer going there. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's good. To, it's good to hear from you, Tommy. Um, if you're on-prem with your house of worship and you're wanting to use PTZs, I highly recommend something, a controller, like uh, like the PTZ Joy, I think it's called. Um, and 
because it is something you don't have to turn on, you don't have to connect. Uh, you do have to connect it that first time, but once it's connected, it's there and people can grab it, grab a camera and turn it. Um, and so I highly recommend, uh, I highly recommend it. It's, it's, it's incredible. It's really useful. I've always done that with, um, my installs and, and then, uh, I feel like the barrier of entry is a little bit lower, um, once it's installed and it, it looks like Jonas may have, (laughs) may have other thoughts here. So I'd, I'd love to hear his, his response, but, um, uh, and what I do in theater, for example, is I use I use a controller like that, and then I call I make presets on that controller, and then I call up those those presets with Isadora in order to to do queuing. So um, Jonas, please chime back in if you want. Go, ahead, Jonas. Uh, I just got confused. Where you fit? Are you talking about remote, or are you talking on there? Because I know with PDSets, call like I think he wants to do it remotely from another network. But then using a physical controller like yeah, you're right. I see the remotely there. I misread the question. Yeah, you could do that just with a side to side VPN. It gets a little more complex. Or you can use Cloudflare Access to bring the TCP connection from the tunnel back down. Uh, We've done that before. Next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next. I've heard of some makers of uh, like Seemi CNC, and that's S E E M E CNC, selling 3D printer kits. Have any of you had experience building your own printer? And he's got a link there to a printer DIY kit. Go ahead, Courtney. In the early days, I used to go to these user groups where people would show these 3D printers that they'd built. And, uh, it's always been quite an experiment getting getting them to work because to do 3D printing well, you need a high de- degree of accuracy and a precision. So it's hard to, you know, if you're cutting your own parts and assembling them, it's hard to get the precision needed to uh, end up with a printer that can deliver good prints. Um, but there are, you know, I, I my first printer was an Ender 3, which you do have to assemble. You know, it comes... Uh, this is Ender 3S1, a newer one, so it's even a little more pre-assembled than the one I got. But uh, you ha- it comes in a flat box. It's kind of like Ikea. You have to put it together from precision parts, but they've thought it all out very well, and you just have to put uh, mount certain things in certain places. And all the stuff that the high-precision parts are already pre-assembled, so you don't have to worry about the fine tolerances of having to adjust stuff uh, for certain places. And you know the idea of a 3D-printed printer... Prusa uses a lot of 3D printed parts in their printers. So if you could get a kit that starts you with a 3D printer that has a lot of 3D printed parts on it, then you could print the kits and create more of the 3D printers. Uh, So you could set up a little 3D printer factory that prints itself. You still have to buy a lot of parts like the controller board and the stepper motors and the extruder and, you know, things like that. But uh, the basic uh, structure you can uh, print. (laughs) <laughs> these are really big printers the, the the i was looking at this while you were talking one of them is like a 20 inch by 20 inch space you know you know that, that you can that you can build in so these are i i see why that they're 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 not quite the standard printers uh that are there but that's i mean again i i would hesitate to make my first printer a build your own printer because of all the things that courtney outlined um so but but this this is pretty interesting that it's a really really large printer if you need to build things that are that are larger than what you're the most of the printers that we buy 
uh, do. Well, the larger the printer, the less precision you need. You know, if you're right. printing something that's this big, you have yeah. to be very precise. If you're printing something that's, you know, a foot wide, you know, yeah. less precision is. Absolutely. Next question. Tim Holm in San Lorenzo, California is back with this. We use light key on an M1 Mac mini for our DMX controls. Would that be your choice? Is there something better? And that, he notes, runs like $10 a month. Go ahead, Slaller. Okay, so this is the kind of question that's tricky because um, it is it is such a personal thing uh, when you're using a when you're using a light a lighting console. It's it's sort of akin to asking somebody if they prefer to drive on the left or the right hand side of the road, um, and if you've already started driving on the left hand side of the road. And you ask that question, then you, they say, no, there's no way. Why would you ever do that? Same goes on the flip side, right? So if you have already begun to utilize this, uh, this software in order to control your lights and it's working for you, then don't, don't move away from it. If there's some sort of limitation that it is providing you, you may want to make a shift to the, to the right side of the road. <laughs> um, because you these these kinds of software uh, controllers often don't increase in functionality. So if your functionality in, it needs are increasing, then you should think about shifting to something that is more uh, in the professional line of line of the world that would have an increase in functionality down the road, right? That that would allow you to do extra things later. So you can get onto that other way of thinking and not have it be such a lift when you go there. But if it works for everything you're going to do for the next 10 years, then you're good. But And I, I say the word 10 years because it's about 10 years of $10 a month that, would, that it would cost for you to buy, for example, ETC EOS right? And, and get a Nomad dongle and a key and get, that, get into that sort of ecosystem. Um, and so you got to think about the budget and you got to think about whether that's that functionality and that potential future functionality is worth it to you. Next question. Michael Slade coming out of San Francisco is now up next. Any suggestions for a Wi-Fi solution between two points that are 50 to 100 yards away where one of the points is moving? I don't know of any that are auto tracking. Um, so the you know point to point, what you're looking for is a is a wireless bridge, um, and usually those are pretty focused. Um, so the ones we've used in the past are, uh, and and you know the, you're really close to the outer edge of a really powerful Wi-Fi network. I'd be tempted to run you know cable <laughs> to it, but it sounds like one's moving around. I, I guess the question is is what is it moving to and and from. But when you deal with these wireless connections, these point-to-points, oftentimes you need to really aim them. Now, like with Ubiquity, we use uh, Ubiquity Wireless. It's a microwave, and it is uh, two degrees is is the is the variance that you have, which may not seem very much, but if, as someone gets further away, two degrees gets pretty big. <laughs> so you kind of just have to aim in that direction, and you'll get you'll get a. Um, and what it has is it has a homing thing now. What we've done for some wireless, we've had some pretty aggressive wireless systems. So, for instance, with uh, there was a thing called the Google the Glass Jump, and with the Glass Jump, we had to track the people jumping out of a blimp all the way down to give them bandwidth, so that so that you could see you could see what they saw on uh, on glass. And so they literally sighted them in, 
and were pointing pointing at them um, as they came down. You, you, if you go back and watch the glass jump, you'll notice that there's different smoke for each person, and that's so that they can track the wireless. And so they they're literally sighting it in and just and just tracking them down to make sure that they gave them gave them bandwidth on the way down. So um, so when you're starting to move things, you may have to have someone do that. There, I think that there's got to be one that's auto tracking at this point. But those those are the ones we've used in the past. Go ahead, Jonas. Yeah, you could also look into Wisp uh, solutions for like a Wisp provider because those are, those are uh, generally more widespread, and then that might be a solution. But also, yeah, it's ninety meters; it might not be that far away. Yep. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, you, I've used the Nighthawk, uh, your Nighthawk uh, beam with Beamforming Plus, and it uses Beamforming in multiple transceivers with multiple antennas or multiple antennas into a single transceiver. And it detects where the signal it's trying to communicate comes from and just uh, forces all of its power into a narrower outlet. It, whether it'll make it that distance or not, eh, kind of iffy, you know, but uh, there are beam forming, uh, I guess you could call them automatic aiming, but uh, electronic beam forming, uh, uh, Netgear makes them uh, uh, access points that are out there. Yeah, and and you know these wireless bridges, um, the small ones are relatively inexpensive in the lo, lo, under two hundred dollar range. So you could test them and just see how well it works. Uh, the ones that we use are a couple thousand dollars, um, and they go I think uh, ten miles. <laughs> so so you can you can you can decide you know what kind of range and what kind of accuracy and cost you want to do. Uh, next question. Foon Dorji, coming to us from Dharamshala, India, says for our next live streaming of a soccer tournament, to save cost, we want the commentator to be in another location. What would that entail, to have his commentary in the live stream? I guess uh, will you, they'll use an elemental link and inject his audio. Please explain the process, if possible. Go ahead, Jonas. I think you have multiple options there. Um, if you just accept his feed is going to be a little latent, uh, use something like Zoom, ship him the feed and have him talk into Zoom, take the Zoom feed out and put it into your mixer and do like a proper mix. In theory, you could do things like having a second input into Media Live since you're already using an elemental link, have his audio come out that way. That makes syncing really hard. Um, if you don't want to do it on the ground, I would just boot up an instance with vMix or OBS in the cloud, um, have it stream to Media Connect, uh, Media Connect SRT or TS into the VPC, and then mix it in there. That way you also have like a failover. If your local connection goes out, the commentator can continue. And that way uh, vMix and OBS both have the, a way to delay the feed. So what you could actually do is like calculate the... Uh, the flight time from what he see class to class from AWS back to the commentator. So you, now you have the whole round trip time. So if it's, let's say, Zoom, you add 600 milliseconds. And now suddenly he's on sync with what is happening again. And um, so that might also be a cool benefit that you can make it up that way. Next question. Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana says, nobody would ever attempt to take the chocolate out of Willy Wonka. Can you name the director who said this? Do you agree with the reasoning? And he's got a link there to a Hollywood Reporter story. Go ahead, Slavik. I'm not entirely sure who, if it was uh, uh, Steven Spielberg who said it from the, from the article that, you, that you've linked. But uh, what this is about is about the fact that when E.T. was re-released, they pulled, they changed... Um, they changed the prop guns in the show to walkie-talkies. 
And um, I think it was, you know, had to do with certain thought processes that are happening right now versus then. And he regrets doing it and thinks that it sort of was problematic for the storytelling. So I would say to answer your question, it it needs to be about the storytelling and um, that probably if you can't find a reason to do this for storytelling reasons, then you're probably not going to want to do it. Han shot first. Next question. Tony Mobley, Noonan, Georgia. I am doing a recording in a theater on my M1 iPad Pro. Is there a recommended app to use for better quality? Good, Tlaloc. Um, I've always enjoyed Filmic, um, but uh, I'd love to hear other answers. Go ahead, Harshid. I was going to go with the same answer with Filmic Pro or even Filmic Remote Pro. And what that will offer you is you could use that as a companion to your iPad. And uh, there are some features. There's a link in the panel that will be posted soon for you guys. Yeah, and I, I, I know that some people complain about the price of Filmic or the subscription model, but it's still the best, you know, um, if you're filming something with a camera uh, or well, your iOS device is still the best one out there. Next question. Robin Cutshaw in Atlanta, Georgia. Cheap motorized boom arm. Go ahead, uh, Richard. Um, yeah, those four words don't often go together. Um, and uh, I, I really hope that if you're matching a, uh, a a camera with your cheap motorized boom arm, you're also uh, having a cheap camera. Um, but the uh, the one I would recommend is uh, Eldachrome. Um, they are uh, really reliable. Not uh, They're on the end of cheap. Um, it's about a thousand pounds. Um, but it's not very, very cheap, but it's certainly the cheapest that I would recommend uh, and I would trust putting a camera that's worth more than the jib uh, on top of. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I don't think I could top that one. That's good. Uh, here's one that you could get on eBay for about 99 for 100 bucks is the Armatron from Radio Shack. They don't make it anymore, but it is <laughs> a cheap <laughs> motorized arm and it's robotic. Go, go ahead, Bill. Go all the way. Yeah, Just, that's go. what I'm saying. Go all the way. Stop, stop fiddling around. <laughs> get a, get a Scorpio. It's all, it's, it's all about the Scorpio. All right, uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael is up next. The electron an anal, uh, analog heat has a set of fixed input sensitivity settings, low, mid, high, and max, with specific max volt per of P2P levels, at 10.5 volts, 5.3, to 2.5 volts, and 1.2 volts. How should I set the input gain properly without a variable gain capability? I don't know. I think you might be asking a question that of, of a product that we don't use. So I, I'm, I think you might have might have stumped the panel on that one. Uh, go ahead, Chris. Can't hear you, Chris. I think the answer is yes. You should set the gain properly. Next question. <laughs> Next question. Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California is up next. And Gordon says, what's the best way to feed a teleprompter screen of a remote host and maybe even an aux feed of guests when not being used to read a script? The, the reality is most of the time I'm using a teleprompter, it's actually not to read a script. <laughs> so so uh, uh, we're usually putting a person in there so that they can look at them and, and interact with them. Or sometimes it's a whole room and sometimes a lot of the other things there. So... I like to put switchers 
in front of there because it gives you a lot more, um, you know, you get a lot more flexibility. So I usually have some version of an ATEM. Back in the day, we used to use the little ATEM production one use with little fins on the back and we'd have those in there, but now you can just use an ATEM, you know, a basic ATEM mini. And what you're gonna have is you're gonna have, you, you oftentimes will have the teleprompter that you're gonna use if you're using text in one input. You're gonna have the, um, the computer that's giving you the zoom that they're gonna look at in another input. Um, and then you might have other things. You might have other rooms. Uh, you can jump to other things if you need those other inputs. But the cool thing about that is one of those oftentimes for us was a keynote, like another computer with keynote on it that we would just type messages into. And what we would do is we'd have them set up in the center and we would make them kind of a, a dark gray over a black background and just do a Luma key. And we could just key it over top of the middle so that we could give the speakers messages. And the kind of messages we would do is like, if you're doing a satellite media tour, um, you have a person who's sitting there and every seven minutes they're talking to a new new TV station. <laughs> and so what we do is we put over in the corner or right in the middle sometimes, this is KTCL. Uh, they are in Fort Collins, Colorado. Uh, and the person you're talking to is this name. And and we, we would just key that into the teleprompter. And it's so awesome because you sit there and they go, hi, Kelly, how you doing? Is, how's, how's it going in Fort Collins, Colorado? And they're looking straight at them and as soon as they do that, we just kind of, we would bring it down to the corner so they could always kind of look at it. But what they weren't doing, which is what every other SMT does, is they look down, hi, Kelly, how you doing? You know, and, and so, uh, or glance down and then glance back up. It's a little thing, but it worked really, really well. And so being able to add those notes to it um, is really great. And I find a switcher is is kind of, uh, for, for me, it's pretty ninja. Uh, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I mean, the, we've heard Alex talk about how he builds out systems and starting with a, a router. And I can remember the first time I realized that I could take a router head and pump it into a teleprompter. It was like, oh, wow, this is super powerful <laughs> yeah. to just be able to put anything at any time. And uh, Alex, super smart to, you know, actually use a, a switcher output with the keyer, you know, to be able to do that. But yeah, you know, that's what you, that's why you want to start everything at a router. And, and, you know, one of the nice things about that also is that a lot of times we'll have things where someone's doing a remote, they're doing a, a testimonial or something like that. And, and what, we, what they're going to do is they're going to read the teleprompter and then we immediately switch it just, just by pushing a button, we switch it over and they can now talk to their client, talk to the folks that the company that didn't show up and have a conversation with them. And then we switch back to the teleprompter and it's just a, it, I, nowadays when it's $300 little piece of hardware that does that is kind of mind blowing for me because I have, it used to be much more complicated. Go ahead, Richard. Yeah, we were doing a job recently where um, the budget was quite limited, um, but everything uh, was being the, the, the guest and the the uh, presenter were uh, in you know connected via Zoom. So the easiest, simple, uh, simplest for us was to actually just use Duet Display from a MacBook onto an iPad and then an iPad underneath the the, uh, the prompter. Uh, uh, you know, just a very simple prompter without a normal screen, and that worked very well for just a you know meaningful low latency conversation. And then in the back end, we would then scrape it from zoom iso for the guest and then locally we we obviously had the camera feed go ahead courtney yeah and all my teleprompting systems we had an external input so that you could put the text up uh, and then you had an external input which you could put a uh, camera into and a lot of times uh dps and lighting uh directors really appreciate this because the camera will be set up with a teleprompter in front of it uh and i'll put the image from that camera 
into the teleprompter so they can be out in front of the camera and lighting and arranging the set and moving stuff in until it's right on the edge of the frame so they can look into the camera and see when they're in, when they're out. They can see what the lighting looks like. It's not a high-quality monitor, but it lets them know, you know, what's in, what's out, and, uh, uh, you know, how to when they're lighting, it really helps uh, to do that. And then I switch to the other inputs, you know, for the Interatron or for the teleprompter when it's time to do that. But during setup, that's very handy to have. Another thing to think in consideration is you need a, to send it to other monitors. You need to make sure that your teleprompter monitor has image reverse built into the monitor itself so that you're not using uh, you know, the video, uh, something that's coming out of your computer to, to flip the image before it goes out to all the monitors. So if you're using a distribution amp, you can then have just regular monitors that aren't mounted in beam splitters that read correctly for other people, for producers and so on. If they need to see the text, if it's a teleprompter, if they need to see the other other talent off off location talent, they won't be looking at them backwards because you've flipped it electronically before it goes to the teleprompter monitor. So make sure your monitors have the ability to flip locally. Next question. Next question comes from Lopez Waterman and here on the panel in Brevard, North Carolina. What's the smallest Intel processor recommended for Zoom on Windows? Tlaloc? I'm just curious about this because I think, you know, there are a lot of really good, small, um, inexpensive uh, PCs uh, mm-hmm. and Nooks, and I'm just wondering where the where the cutoff is and and what what some of the problems might be. I'm starting to learn some of them myself, um, but um, <laughs> I, I'd love to hear what Jonas has to say. Go, ahead, Jonas. It depends on what you're trying to do. Zoom runs really well on basically everything. I mean, I've run it on a Raspberry Pi. If you want HD video, though, uh, the current spec I was would say is anything that's at least a quad core processor. And for Zoom rooms, it's i5 or i7 or i9. Um, I would try to like an i5 that has like a quad core probably is uh, good enough for 1080p. And then just keep a look at turbo boosting that um, that doesn't bring you too high to the 80% where Zoom will start to throttle you and put you in a penalty box. Um, for two, three minutes. So try to stay like a 40, 50, 60%. But in generally, it has been pretty well. Um, Zoom uses a lot of the Windows APIs, but all of them are in all of the Intel chips. So I think, yeah, generally you should be fine. Next question. Next one comes to us from L. Wilson Sparrow in Berlin. Silly question. Since microphones and speakers are basically the same mechanism and can be used as terrible versions of each other. Yes, they can. Have you ever used a mic as a speaker or a speaker as a mic just for fun? Oh, it's Wallach. I never have. Um, well, actually, that's not true. I have. But the problem is the voltage. Um, because you, if you send the, that kind of, the speaker voltage into a microphone, you're going to break something. Um, so uh, terrible and short-lived. <laughs> All right, let, we're going to go ahead and jump, jump to the next uh, to the second hour. We're now jumping into the second hour, and uh, we are we're going to be talking about how office hours actually works. Again, I, I've said this at the beginning of the show. It's a it's a complicated thing. Like it seems simple, it seems fluid, uh, and it and it seems uh, just like it works. Uh, but there's a lot under the hood that makes it actually work. And while we've had updates in the past, what we haven't been doing is really breaking down the overall view for quite some time of exactly what it takes. So I'm going to hand this off a little bit to Tlaloc, uh, and he's going to um, kind of guide us through 
uh, some of the some of the pieces of this. Of course, we have uh, Richard and Jonas here as well from the dev team, and so they're going to um, kind of uh, as a team explain a little bit about about how this actually comes together. Go ahead, Tolik. Yeah, so I I think that um, this is going to be this is going to be difficult. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you to to explain this to 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 you in 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 this format, but we're going to do our best and. Um, I'm going to try to break it down to the different groups of, of control and of, of logic that we, that we try to utilize, uh, which includes, um, universe control, universe control, which allows our TDs from around the world, uh, uh, to access the system and make, make input commands. And then, uh, then we have Isadora, which hears those commands and also hears um, information from Zoom ISO and information from MixEffect. Um, and then we have the constellation and, and, and all the hardware um, uh, that does the switching and brings, brings in your images, or brings in the panelist images as well as the panelist audio um, and from Zoom ISO and then uh, gets, it gets switched around. Um, and and then there's also this other component that I'm hoping Jonas will help us with, which is the idea of how do we safely uh, uh, co connect to the universe program in order to make to make these these controls happen. Um, and then there's the Mukana side of things, which allows us to take uh, the producer questions and and bring them into the system and show them on on screen. It also allows us to pre-build the super source and the super source is related to um, who has raised their hands on a particular question. And, um, and, and, and so that is built by sending commands over to mix effect in order to uh, build that super source that can be utilized. And then there's another side of it, which is the, the gallery that we see. And this is, you know, by the way, I wanted to say, I'm going to interrupt myself here and to say, this is all fluid because everybody who works on the team, which is a really awesome team, is constantly making things better, constantly working on things, constantly stabilizing things. And um, Juan Robles has done an amazing job on the Isadora side of things. Uh, Richard has done an amazing job with Universe. Um, we have Kevin Hansen, who, who's helped us with a lot of the hardware routing that's changed over the past few, um, uh, few months. Um, JJ... Uh, we couldn't do it without him because he has such a large, wide understanding of how everything works, and it's really, really useful to be able to work with him on how to how to pull things together, and so and more and more and more and more. So um, it's it's a really cool to be part of this um, to to have been given the opportunity to to watch these minds at work. Um, so um, I think the way that we're going to try to do this session is to go through each step in a little bit more detail. Jonas? Okay, so uh, Richard, do you want to go? Yeah, sure thing. Um, so uh, from my perspective, there's probably um, in how Office Hours works, there's kind of three different um, sections. Um, there's kind of what we're talking about today, which is the, the tech, but actually there's way more because there's also the team 
and then there's the production side. So the tech is actually the underlying thing that brings it all together. But the the team that is behind it is actually what really makes OH work. Uh, and that takes a, a way more effort even than the technical side. And then there's the panel and production side. And all those three things are kind of what combine on a daily basis to make OH work uh, in the way that it does. So we can go through the technical side, but there's actually a huge logistical side that Josh and Alex and the 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 uh, uh, Mickey and JJ and the 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 um, the the, the, the um, panels uh, I'm losing the the, the councils uh, come together and choose topics and bring things together, uh, and the team itself. You know, there's a huge logistical side, and that's really quite interesting because that's the the iceberg um, that that we often miss because um, that's where, as Alex mentions, the the village that people who are watching this as a community can actually get involved in and get their hands in and that's a really interesting side uh, as well as then the kind of production side where you know the panel and the mechana that that, that that's a really kind of all three things have to link together to to make it work so um uh, to look has kind of started to mention the the, the the how things are connected together um so if you're joining the kind of crew, then usually the, the first thing that you connect with is Universe. Uh, and Universe is basically just the user interface for for um, uh, for for the system. So this is the technical director uh, interface. So if you come in and cut the show, um, then this is what you'll, you'll be faced with. And what we've tried to do is dumb down all of the different complex uh, things that uh, a show involves into one page as much as as possible. Um, so this uh, down below, we have obviously um, all the different buttons to select up to 20 of the different inputs, so 20 of the different panelists. Um, these are preview buttons, so when you press them, it doesn't go straight into program, uh, so it just previews them in the, in the switcher. Um, then we have um, some of the more bespoke buttons that kind of are emergencies. So host is programmatically uh, chosen as a set. Uh, so each day the question manager will assign the host and the reader uh, in Meccana. That Meccana tells Isadora who's been set. And then that will basically, when the host button is pressed, it only goes to the person who's been assigned as host. So those kind of buttons, uh, the gallery and active speaker as well, uh, are very specific kind of inputs. Um, the the Active speaker is an interesting one in and of itself to kind of talk about because active speaker is, because um, we're using a constellation to cut the show, active speaker is a system that is designed by Isadora um, to take who is speaking and then add a little bit of uh, special food to it, uh, which that Lala can, can, can take. But it's done on a constellation ME2 of that constellation. So in the... Um, uh, it's then sent through into the ME1, uh, that kind of live cut, and then that button is then essentially just recalling a specific input. I think in this instance, it's input 21, say. Uh, and then, uh, but all of that button, uh, you know, that hides all of that complexity of what's going on behind it. Um, so then at the top, we have our super source buttons uh, that can bring up different presets of super source. So this is where our universe is again talking to Isidore, which talks to mix effect uh, to recall specific types of, of, of uh, super source. But then again, the complexity of it, these super sources are then auto filled 
by who has raised the hand on Makana, as Talalok says, uh, and then uh, that's all filled by by, by essentially Isadora, uh, you know, talking to the constellation. Uh, on this side, then, just some simpler kind of buttons, transitions at the top, and then we have graphics buttons. Uh, so things like the downstream key. So if you're seeing uh, at any stage, uh, say someone's uh, lower third, uh, if there's a lower third comes up underneath me, that'll be on the downstream key. The question comes up on the downstream key. So we haven't necessarily labeled those buttons as being um, uh, like what they do. We've labeled them what their role is using the switcher. So we've tried to make this as connected to a, a normal ATEM or a normal kind of switcher as possible with certain terminologies so that people who come into this system for OH can then easily uh, go off and start using their own systems in a, in a similar way. Um, so the question in and lower third essentially then activates one of the other programs that we talk about, which is SPX, uh, which is on another computer. So all of these are basically controlling lots of different computers that are in uh, uh, 090, uh, and it's just a whole just slew of massive different things connected together. It's 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 quite fascinating. Uh, this is the more complex page uh, when you start to delve into things. This is the EIC page. We're not going to dwell on it, but essentially it holds uh, a lot of the different things that uh, that entire interface that I just showed you is distilled into this one section of this page and everything else here is then more complex in how people are then assigned and routes through Sumiso. And recently we've started to change some of the ways the gallery has been made um, to make it more stable so Sumiso doesn't have to change as much. So that, that's kind of the, what people get their hands into, uh, first of all. Uh, so Universe then talks, as Deluxe uh, said, to, to Isadora, and Isadora then talks to several of the different programs, talks to SPX, talks to MixEffect, talks to Sumiso, talks to the Constellation. So uh, Isadora is the brain, as we refer to it. You go, Jonas. Yeah, so um, the question now, of course, is that we have all of these amazing um, layouts that... Uh, Richard just showed, and now we need to get those websites out. But since this is a live on air show, we also need to do that in a secure fashion where we can know who is accessing it. So what we are using for that is Cloudflare Tunnels, which basically is a reverse proxy that uses a tunnel to reach uh, the universe instance. What that means is there's no VPN from the cloud to ONNO. There's no VPN involved for most of the operators, the EICs have and VPN to fix stuff when it's broken. But for all of the other operators, all they do is they log into a web page. And then on that web page, they get an access URL. So what happens then is you need to log into your account. There's like, it's called Cloudflare Access, and they set up multiple factors. So we can say, hey, if your email is on our list, if your IP address is on our list, if your IP address doesn't come from this region, you can set up a lot of uh, rules where when is allowed to uh, enter. So that is part, and then you get a little session, and then you suddenly can access the pages that we want you specifically to access. But that uh, prevents us from someone just logging into the system and being like, hey, uh, I really think Alex should be on screen right now. Let me just put Alex on screen all the time. Um, that's where we prevent that. And it has been really cool because we can have very granular control where Talok gets access to a lighting page on Universe. I get access to the EIC page. Richard cuts the show on the cutting page and Mickey gets an audio page. All of those can be separated and you can assign 
um, a secure access on a per page basis. And then like we also have tools like SPX and the others that also can be tunneled out through that one tunnel. We use the same tag also for like the audio stream. So yeah, it's it's used a lot in this uh, specific setup. Good, Solid. So I think it's important to um, thank you both uh, for such good good explanations there. Um, but to to circle back a little bit to the constellation and the four MEs, because what that allows us to, by putting Active Speaker on ME two. And by putting um, the gallery creation on ME3, and there's a graphics creation on ME4, <laughs> what that means is that all those things can happen without taking up room from the live program on ME1. And so as each of us are speaking, if we happen to be in gallery or in a super source, the active speaker continues to work underneath that so that the TD can see that that we're in the in the right spot and that we're looking at the right thing at any given moment. And so we protect we protect that. We want we want the TD to see that active speaker continues to work whether or not they're using it. Um, and I think that's an important thing to sort of think about. And it may be a good way for for folks who haven't utilized a multi, multiple ME switcher to think about why there would be multiple MEs. Because you can pre-build things and get things ready to put into program um, at any given point. And you can see them before you send them. Send them. So when we're looking at the multi-view as a TD, we're watching active speaker constantly changing as different people are speaking and even if if a td is utilizing a direct preview to cut they can still see that the active speaker is ready to go and put put us back there um so i think it's an important point about why constellation is is powerful to use yeah i, I think that it, it, i think a lot of people that i get the question it's probably one of the most common questions i get about switchers is like why would you need more than one me <laughs> i'm like we run into a cap at four me's all the time you know like there are bigger me's that have you know bigger switchers that have eight me's and eight me splits which are basically 16 me's and there's lots of different uh ways of of managing those things and, and it's so that you can build up other parts of the program and then feed them back into the program um, uh, and have those have independent switching capabilities. It's really, really powerful. Um, do you have anything else you want to share before we yeah, go to the so questions? Yeah, so I think before we jump into the questions, which I, I think the questions are going to help a lot, but um, before we do that, I, I want to make an attempt to talk about how the logic is 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 dealt with in Isadora. Um, we have some... Um, we have some image images and some PDFs that Juan built to help us sort of think through it. I'm going to try to do a, a screen share, um, and uh, um, make sure that I'm not showing things I shouldn't be showing. <laughs> uh, okay, and um, so. This is what Isadora looks like <laughs> on the back end. Um, and it and, is... And for, in, in scale of Isadora in general, is this a particularly complicated Isadora patch? Or, I mean, or... Oh, quite. <laughs> <laughs> this is not something you see normally. Yeah, a... yeah this, is, this is pretty complicated. Um, and there's a couple things I'd like to say about what you're looking at here. Um, it is not... It is not 
the most complicated. It is not the least complicated. It is quite complicated. We use one scene, and in Isadora allows you to have multiple scenes, which um, allows you in a show circumstance to sort of move from thing to thing and project different different uh, projection output, different projections or different sounds or different other kinds of effects. We stay in one scene and send a bunch of information in in and out and in and out from di- different places to different places, and we th- and we have Isadora do logic to think about how to use that and 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 work with it. Um, and so, um, uh, what you're looking at are these different, these different areas inside the patch and they all do different things and they work, you know, some of them will be talking to SBX. Some of them will be talking to mix effect. Some of them will be talking to hearing from Mukana. Some of them is mix effect responding and saying, where are we in the, in, in the cut? You know, what, what switch is happening at any given point. Other things are, um, uh, allowing for zoom ISO to be joined, um, and, and joined to the meeting so that, you know, we don't have to go into four in or five individual zoom ISO bots and join them on so that it's doing all kinds of things and sending a lot of OSC, Outputs and a lot of HTTP, uh, a lot of H. What is it called, Jonas? Um, HTTP outputs. It's also sending uh, TCP outputs. So it's like all kinds of different packets of information are going to different computers and different uh, pieces of software in order to make certain things happen. Um, and uh, so you have uh, you have you have a section that's dealing with just Active Speaker. And what is Active Speaker doing? It's looking, it's looking at Mukana and seeing who's in the in the meeting, checking their pins. Then it's looking at the meet, who's in the meeting from Zoom ISO and combining those and turning that into a list. And then it's it's also uh, associating a particular route to or a particular camera inside the constellation to that particular person. So when Tlaloc speaks. It's going to say, okay, I'm going to go to route three and switch ME2 to route three, right? So instead of using Zoom uh, active speaker switching, we're, we're getting information from Zoom about who's speaking and then making the switch happen in the, in the switcher. Down the road, we might start utilizing the actual sound of a particular person in, in order to switch rather than the information coming from Zoom. This is all um, a, a work in progress. So I'll stop sharing that, and then we'll go to the next thing here. Um, and uh, the uh, there's there's this sort of serialized data that. Um, sorry for figuring out how to share this the best way, but there's um, there's serialized data for everything. So, if you think about it, <clears throat> Zoom can output the, the each each participant in the meeting one at a time. But what we need to do is combine that into a list, and then think about that thing as a whole. And so, when Andy Carluccio began building this system back in the day, he figured out ways to take that. Uh, step-by-step information coming out of the meeting, turn it into a, a, a list, and then and then do work with it and and add information about routes and add information about um, all kinds of things to it. 
Um, then as we, as we got further and further along on the project, uh, we did a couple of things. One thing is instead of connecting everything together by, by uh, a bunch of lines, we started to utilize what are called um, global values, which allows us to move information around inside the patch in sort of a, a, a more efficient way. And if you look at this infrastructure setup, what you see is all these different, um, can you guys read this well enough? I so, can read the part that says Fenwick frame. Uh, that's good. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the one, that's the one you want to know. Um, but what this allows us to do is if you see that, you see how there's all there's universe control, there's, um, zoom OSC, there's, uh, uh, ISO, there's, um, uh, graphics, there's SFX. So all these little engines are working to control all of those different things. And, um, and it allows us to do a lot of work more automatically and, uh, and allow single button pushes to happen by, by the TD and quite a few more than single button pushes to happen by the EIC, but we're working to try to, 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 to narrow that down. Um, and uh, I think um, it would be good to maybe move through some questions and then we can come back to a few more uh, graphics down the road. Sounds great. Let's go to the first question. First question comes to us from Dave Kaufman in Vancouver, British Columbia. What do you see as a panelist that the viewers don't see? Chris? Yeah, one of the things I find super interesting about the show versus being on the show is what what may not be obvious is that we are all still in a Zoom meeting right now. I can see the entire panel. Um, and I got to say, I find that useful. A lot of times, let's face it, a lot of times I'm rambling or saying something stupid. And I can I can see Alex's temples start to, there he goes. I could see Alex's temples start to throb a little. And it's like, okay, I need to wrap up. But I think that as a viewer, when I watch just like on YouTube, I like to see that that view more. And I think, you know, I, I would cut it a little different if I was doing it, but I understand that there's reasons for doing it the way we do. Um, but I like being able to see that. Also, uh, you know, we talk about Mukana and people have seen the, the part of Mukana where you can an ask the questions, but there's also very interesting data on the backside, on the back end that we get to see uh, you know, we can chat between each other. Alex can send me a message that says, "Hey, shut up, let's move on." And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say that doesn't happen a lot. <laughs> Go ahead, Bill. <laughs> For all of us, you know, I, and again, some this is Alex's proprietary stuff, so we don't show it or or talk about it very much. In the broadest possible stro strokes, there is a view that helps panelists do what panelists are supposed to do which means that we have to be aware of the questions that are here, also the questions that are coming up, because a lot of us are trying to figure out how do I give the best answer possible? So there has to be a format that lets us look ahead and see what's coming up, track it as it comes up, know how much time we have, if we're going to do a little research or something like that. And it's very helpful in that way. We can also reach out to each other, but 
that's the kind of thing that the display you get as a panelist encourages you to do. So really, this was built in a very brilliant fashion to help you do the best job for the viewer that you can as a panelist. It is a thing that we rely on every day. And I'm very comfortable when I have this information in front of me, knowing that I'm never entirely alone as someone whose job it is to try to help people get tech stuff right. Go ahead, Slavik. Um, so I, I think I wanted to also point out, because Chris mentioned something really important. He's like, I think I would cut it a little differently. Um, and, and, and I think that that's important because I think, you know, when a T there's a bunch of different TDs that, that have been trained and have, have TD'd and, and, um, uh, some of them like to do things a little bit differently than others. And we get feedback and we adjust that or we don't get feedback, you know, we, or we get feedback that that's great and we add more of that. But um, there is sort of a style that is um, being attempted to to be followed. And so, um, you know, and that that is not static. That adjusts. We get certain notes and, and move move things and change things as, as time goes on. But I think if people are feeling like, um, or I think it'd be an interesting exercise for people to to watch and see if they can see the the personality of the TD in what they're and in, in, in how and how the show is moving, and uh, and in fact, I think you you can. Go. No, I I, I completely agree, and and I think that um, the the interesting thing is is that. You, what the back end gives us the power to do is have a panel this size. So think about if you look at the panel that we have right now, um, we have about nine people, I think, in the panel. How many times do you see nine people on a stage? Not very often. Why? Because it's chaos. <laughs> like it's just chaos. Like as someone who's done a lot of these shows and we've had up, you know, we've had 20 people on the panel and 16 people on the panel. And you never do those in real life because you can't. You can't do that. Um, the audio is a mess. The cameras are a mess. And just the interaction is a mess. And that's what this system has allowed us to do is, is um, really organize it. And not only does it help organize it where the panelists are able to say what, what, that they can answer the question. How many times do you get to a question and go, okay, in every other show that you see that's like ours, you'll see, okay, who wants to answer that question or who wants to do, or, or the host just throws it to Chris and Chris is like, I, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't, you know, they make something up. And so the the fact that we can sit there and, and raise our hands and then and then be able to put them in order and then that drives the graphics. So that's the other big thing is that is that Makana then tells you know hands off the data of this is the order this is who's going to answer the question. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I gotta I, I gotta jump in here. Um, when Alex first implemented the the back end Makana for the panelists, I was like, ah, oh, come on, come on. <laughs> How much control do you actually have to have over the universe that you live in? I was just like, ah, oh, here we go. And then I raised my hand the first time. Yeah, so, so what we have is we have a little button. It's just click, click. I want to raise my hand. And what we see is we see boop, 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 all the people that Alex or the, the host intends to call on in the order that they call on. Now, we know each other. We've been doing this for years. Uh, I can see, I remember the first time I saw that happen and I went, oh, wow, this is brilliant. Because not only do I, did I want to contribute something, but I can see like say, oh, B 
Bill's going to go before me. Bill's going to mention this. I know Bill enough. Uh, you know, Courtney's going to mention this. I, you know, cause I know these people and I can tailor what I'm going to say because I know who's going before me. And not only that, you know, we hear inflections in voice. I can tell Bill's about to wrap up. I can unmute my mic, you know, a half a sentence early. And when I'm called on, I'm not, I don't have to necessarily fumble. And I remember the first time we used it, it was like a total light bulb moment. And that's when I realized and it wasn't just Alex wanting to be a control freak. The man is brilliant. I'm telling you. Well, and, and, and again, the, the thing that's interesting is the interaction between all of these things. So we have, we have something that's managing these, you know, the, it, we have a way to manage something that was previously unmanageable. And that's not just the, that's the, the panelists, you know, it, it allows us to have that negotiation. It allows someone to log in from anywhere in the world. It allows um, all the, all the data to be passed back and forth. And it's, um, and it's a, it's a, it's why I feel like I talked about this a little bit at NAB, not nearly as clearly as it's being talked about here because I don't do it every day and I don't work on it all the time. But I think that um, I felt like, oh, we really have to show people like this is how this works because it's, it is something that I think transforms a lot of uh, events like ours into, into something a little bit bigger. Let's go to the next question. Oh, Wilson Sparrow in Berlin. What is your favorite part of the system and what is your least favorite part of the system and why? Go ahead, Slala. Um, I, two favorites, I know you're not supposed to have two favorites, but one, one is to just be on comms and listen to how this group communicates with each other and keeps, um, keeps things rolling and, and puts a lot of care into this system. I mean, that's just something that I really, I find incredibly inspiring. Um, and then I've always had a lot of love for Isadora. <laughs> so I, I know that might be why you asked this question l but i've always had a huge amount of love uh for isadora for the 12 or 14 years that i've been that i've been working with it in my own business and the fact that i can see it coming to a place where it no, it 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 wasn't previously in a broadcasts uh, world um, makes me incredibly happy and makes me happy to see people thinking about it in a different way um we're not utilizing isadora for for um graphical or or rendering output which is what it sort of was originally thought as but we're using it as a an engine of information which i think is a great way to think about it and it, it has by working on this project it has adjusted how i think about how i do my work in the theater for example in, i used to send the pictures of supertitles across to um to, a, to another output and now i send i send the data i send the text across an osc command and it's it just speed things speeds things up so much. I think it's a really great great way to th shift the way that I also think about how how to use that program. Um, the least favorite part is you know when um, um, we're freaking out because things are things are 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 not working and we're concerned that it's going to show up on the show and and um, it's nerve wracking. Um, but uh, the the team the team has an an incredible way to get through that. So I, I appreciate every one of you. Go ahead, Jonas. So I, I'm just going to do like to look. I have two favorite things. The first of all is the team that we've built to do it. Second thing is that this thing is no longer a thing. Like anyone who just joined office hours lately, before we had Mukana, we all had to raise our hand physically 
And I can tell you there's nothing more infuriating than like keeping your hand up for five minutes for Alex to say, next question. Yeah. Like, I think I rage quitted at least like three times where it's like, are oh, you on the second page? And like this motion, I think we should like uh, have a little initiation where you like at least hold your hand five minutes like that. And yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, the, it, it, the seals have to like doggy paddle in a pool for a, a certain amount of time. We just have to hold our hand up for ex, you know twenty minutes or something like that. <laughs> Go ahead, Richard. Uh, yeah, like uh, Talalak and, and Yunus, uh, I absolutely love the, the the team that's come together to 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 do the shows. I think that's certainly the thing that that brings me back is working with people, uh, sitting and uh, talking to people, solving problems. Um, the the scale of the project is i think growing beyond what a lot of people would have assumed i think when when starting out um and that's both the good thing and probably the bad thing is that now it's it's not a lovely um a little yacht it's a it's a massive tanker and if you want to change that where that tanker is going it takes a while and that that's probably the only slight frustration at this stage good bill the social aspect has been my favorite part of it beyond a shadow of a doubt. It's getting to know everybody on the panels, getting to know the people in the back end. These are fabulous people who know so much and are just incredibly generous with it. And um, so I think Chris hit that part of it really right. And the social dynamic of it, if I see two people ahead of me and I know they're going to, often I, I raise my hand early because there's nobody there. And I think, well, I know something about this. Older. I look back later and there's two people who know more than I do. And I can uncheck my hand because I don't have to try to carry that burden of trying to help people when somebody much better to help them is after me. So I think that's a brilliant thing. Uh, my least favorite part of the system, the only thing is it's frustrating sometimes to, in the middle of discussion, go, oh, I know how to exactly solve that for them. But then because of what I have to do as a host when I'm hosting, there's not enough time left and it's too late. And I see my, the that Alex can't pick on me. I realize why, but I wish I could find a way to get that nugget of information that might have really helped in there. So sometimes it's frustrating because you just, you know, there's no psychic thing behind us going, Alex, I just have this little thing and it would really help. But... <laughs> Oh, well. <laughs> Next question. Next question is Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado. Do you account for delay or latency for the long distance that your signal must travel, thinking of keeping people from talking over each other in that gap? Many remote news reports don't account for signal latency. Go, Jonas. No. Um, it's actually a surprising hard thing. And I think all of the U U.S. panelists never experience it as much. But like Zoom has become a long way as well in like lowering that latency. But like at the start of the pandemic, it was another thing that's really hard uh, if it's not as structured as it is here uh, to jump in. Because when you think there's a point to jump in, that point is already passed when you start to jump in and then the other person is confused. Um, so I think through the system that we use right now with the hands risen and all that, I know when I'm about to be called on. So that way it's easier to, because you don't need to jump in, but it's really hard still if it's more like a discussion. And there's no really a way for us to account to it. Like we could delay the video feeds, but the communication is as, as slow as it is because physics, like we just yeah. can't connect Germany and the US faster. It's kind of amazing though that we, that we are connecting Germany and the US like so seamlessly. Go ahead, Chris. I'm just curious, Jonas, do you experience more delay than we do? Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, really? yeah he's got an extra quarter second there. Um, 
Yeah, go ahead, Bill. Yeah, I just think um, the latency is most troubling for me when I was trying to host things like Cinegear or something like that, because you know there's a delay, and I kept hearing in my ear that, you know, don't do any countdown, just get to the next thing, and, and it changes over the course of time. So I think it's amazing what we're able to accomplish with this, but it's not always easy to handle latency in live. And part of what we do to manage latency is the way we manage questions and is the way we manage all these things. The the, the structure that we've created actually is taking that latency into account. It's what I kind of learned doing a lot of these events is that, you know, having people answer by having everybody ask their questions via text, it means that that creates a huge amount of late. It does two things. It lets you Ask the question when you think of it, not in the last 15 minutes of a session. It also, you know, where you forget it by the time you get there. Uh, it also um, creates a situation where the questions don't have to have late, you know, there's not a latent issue where they just went by and we couldn't see them. So it, it, it does take that into account. And the order that we create does take that into account. Next question. Douglas Carmichael, can the TD technical director interface be connected to a stream deck or external control surface? I know Universe itself can talk to a stream deck. Go ahead, Jonas. The nice thing is it could, but it isn't right now. And like Office House is always evolving. But the great thing is there's no like barrier to entry. Like anyone who wants to cut it opens up a website on in, on any Chrome-ish browser and clicks starts clicking with their mouse and it just works. Yes, we could like, and I think long term that's where we're gonna go. Like have better hardware panels and all that. But it can, yes, but it isn't. Next question. David Hall is up next. On the screenshot from Isadora, it looks like the different sections aren't connected. How do they communicate? Go ahead, Lana. So there's a function in Isadora called global value, as well as a few other ways like broadcaster that allow you to send information across without having a physical line to send it. Because um, if you think about it, when a, a patch gets to be this, this large, um, you're having to render uh, a line to turn from from um, from red to green, and so the less you can do that, you can actually speed things up uh, in in small fractions of a second in micro in milliseconds. And so, um, when things get to be big, you stack up those those delays or those those uh, um, system requirements, and you want to sort of pull those back. And that's one of the reasons that we did that. the The downside of that is it's harder to find an issue. It's harder to track things around and see where information is moving at any given moment. And um, and so, uh, you know, it was a shift in mentality from, we, we had we had a patch that was mostly, mostly not like that. And then uh, Juan Robles did a bunch of work to sort of clean it up in that way and, and build it that way. Once you get into it, you can you can sort of see how the how the the data moves in a good way, but it's just not as overviewable um, for somebody who isn't in it all the time. Next question. Dave Kaufman in Vancouver, British Columbia. Does the technical director have their hands on physical control surface or are they interfacing with a screen? Go talk. Um, for the most part, they're interfacing with a screen. Um, and, uh, I believe that's the case for everybody right now, but Richard will follow up. Go ahead, Richard. Yeah, it's, it's pretty much uh, just as Jonas was saying, it can connect to something like a stream deck, but that's not something that we've we've developed at the moment because, uh, and uh, which is I quite like, is the barrier to entry is really low. Um, all you need is a Chrome browser on a laptop and a decent internet connection and you can cut the show. 
Um, so that's all those um, stages that I showed earlier on come from Universe. Um, this is Universe showing kind of all runs within one program. Uh, and that then outputs to to just a Chrome browser uh, through the, the the Cloudflare tunnel that we mentioned before. So it's just a screen. So mouse, pointer, you know, trackpad, that's the controls. Next question. Next one comes from Douglas Carmichael. Does the EIC have to be physically on-site at 090 in case of hardware failure, or is it more of a management role? Go ahead, Richard. Uh, no, um, the EIC at this stage, JJ and, uh, and Mickey, uh, and sometimes Kirsten and Jonas or myself, um, are usually always remote. Um, we have Kevin, who's on site, um, not for the show, but just in case we need to reroute something or if there's something particularly goes wrong. Um, but literally, um, everything is done remote. Go ahead, Jonas. That's where like a well thought out uh, control design is really a key. That is why the EICs have secondary out of bound of the Cloudflare tunnel measurements of accessing stuff. Like I think there's like two to three to four ways to access each uh, given device. And then if there's a failure, there's still the ability to root around it. Um, I don't know how far we've come on being able to remotely turn it off and on again which like also fixes like 98% of the issues. And then we definitely had uh, JJ driving uh, to the location once uh, when everything wasn't working before our show, but uh, it, it doesn't happen really often. I mean, and it really is like a couple of times, you know, since after we've really, it wasn't always that way, but I think the last couple hundred events have been pretty seamless, you know, and, and you know, there, there's, it's not that there's not a glitch here and there, but the fact that we're doing this every day, you know, you know um, and globally, and it's just mostly running, it's pretty, pretty amazing. Go ahead, Lala. Can't hear you. I hope oh, you muted yourself again. I wanted to touch on what Jonas just said about um, uh, about turning things on and off again. We do have two units that are uh, remotely switched um, power units, but we need a little bit more R&D to make those work. We have them in hand, um, but I think we purchased <laughs> for budget and not for uh, for usability. And then it was like proprietary on some other side of it. And so, you know, this is how this works. There's not a giant pot of money to pull from when you need something. So we have to sort of be um, really, really judicious about how we do things. And then sometimes we need a little more time. And it's that, it's that triangle of time, money, and quality, right? And it is amazing. I mean, this has all been done on a shoestring budget. Like this is the kind of thing that, you know, it's, it is everyone volunteering their time, uh, you know, us getting the hardware, you know, little bits of hardware that we need and trying to be as, and I think it's been, it's been the thing that prob that I've liked the least. I'm not used to that. I'm used to just going, okay, we've a I've got a big budget. I'm just going to buy all the things I need. Uh, and and but it also I think the constraints have, have forced us to be very creative. Uh, go ahead, Richard. Yeah, just as as Alex said, uh, it's been running very seamless, and that's a lot of that is down to to JJ and Mickey uh, and the, the the dev team in the design uh, and making sure that. There's multiple ways of entering the system. Um, so uh, a lot of the time, uh, the EIC will be dialed in via Parsec, so not just uh, using um, uh, the universe system, but also uh, getting access to the, to the network. So you can really start to ping devices, understand what's going on, uh, and start to, you know, that's what stops, you know, a lot of things having to be hands-on is, is that network infrastructure. And the understanding of that, you know, a lot of it comes from JJ. 
Next question. Dave Kaufman in Vancouver, British Columbia. I have seen meters in After Hours that measure the audio levels in LUFs, which seems to be a better insight than Zoom meetings. What level of LUFs do you recommend? Go ahead, Flawler. Uh, we shoot for negative 24 um, for all of our panelists. And uh, yeah. And we played, the funny thing is, we played with negative 22 for a little while. And the problem really was there were some mics that just didn't quite get there. You know, like, so, so tw negative 24 means that we all sound negative the same. Negative 22 was crazy. It was crazy. I, crazy. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. We might as well be doing twenty three nine eight instead of twenty four. I mean, you know, like, like you know. So, so the, uh, but, but, yeah. The, I think that when we went to twenty two, some mics didn't quite make it there. So, so it was easier to go back to negative twenty four. Uh, next question. Too much talk of cloud lifters back then. Uh, Douglas Carmichael, it seems like Isadora is talking to and responding in many different data formats. Would a broker converting each disparate data format into XML or OSC be more efficient for the developers? Go ahead, Tlaloc. I think that probably uh, there's about six different opinions on this on the dev team. Um, and, uh, uh, but here's my opinion. <laughs> my opinion is that we're utilizing a lot of different inf uh, types of software and hardware. And so it's important for us to have the flexibility to utilize different information packets, TCP, UDP, um, OSC, uh, et cetera. And so it may, it may be more efficient for, um, for the processing but it may be a little bit less efficient while we're developing, right? As we're adding things, we're working also with uh, the FS HDRs in order to work on uh, HDR work. And th those take a particular kind of input and we have to try out um, how we do the, the control of these things. Instead of pre-baking in into a broker how this all works, it's easier for us to go, go direct at least right now. Um, I would also say one of my favorite things about this process has been, oh, something doesn't do something, like Mix Effect for a long time didn't output any information about the switcher. Um, and I just kept <laughs> asking for it and probably annoying Adam. Um, and, uh, and I think others were asking for it too. I don't think it was just us, but, but when we finally got that, then, then we had to figure out how that worked and whether we could, we could ingest that information and what to do with it. And then we had to go back and forth. So that, that kind of work with, with the developers on how to, um, do something that might be, a, might kind of fall in the bespoke category a little bit is quite fun, but, um, yeah. I'm enjoying it. Yeah, and, and I will say that uh, I we talk a lot about the team, but the develop the companies that build the software and hardware that we are using are also part of the team. <laughs> they have been, you know, um, uh, people have been updating uh, a variety of pieces of the software and the hardware specifically for us. Um, things are being, you know, AJA's making some accommodations for us so that we can do the HDR stuff that we've done in the past. Um, you know, Black Magic has made some changes in the past. Isadora is definitely updating things. Adam's updating things. Um, you know, a lot, you know, Tuomo has been helping us with the graphics. And so all these external developers have all been making adjustments because we're pushing something and we're creating something new and they're excited about it. And it's an incredible partnership, you know, to make this work. Go ahead, Jonas. So, Yes, I agree. We definitely would benefit from efficiency of a data broker, especially in development. I think one of the biggest issues with 
how the Isidora patch is right now is how much data is flowing around and how much caching that we don't really have a lot of control over is. And you see that because like the current Isadora patch now has a concept of saving stuff into a file and reading it again. And a lot of, I think we've reached a point where a lot of this would be better in a code, especially when we need to do repetitive things. Like you see 16 people on up to 16 people on the screen. If you need to do something once, it's really great and easy to do it in Isadora. You need to do something 16 times, store it 16 times, and then ideally, as we grow, be able to store settings on a per panelist basis into a database and call it back. That's, I think, where really data broker makes a lot of sense. Um, but like Talak said, that is one of the biggest disagreements on the development team. And I think one of the reasons for that also is if you write it in something that is more scalable and that is actual code instead of no code is, Mean that means also now you need developers who know how to code, and that uh, makes the amount of volunteers that we have smaller. So there's pros and cons for everything. Next question, Chris Clark in Tempe, Arizona says, "Say more about the office hours community and how it's central to the magic that has become the office hours we know and love today." Go ahead, Richard. Yeah, it's I suppose the most interesting example is just how off it uh, the two point system um, evolved. So. Um, we go back to, and Alex can correct me if this is wrong, but Andy Carluccio kind of, and Sumiso, the creation of that. And in Jonathan. Part of, <laughs> were, and Jonathan, in, yes. in my office, sitting there with stacks of uh, stacks of hardware and and Isadora, and just kind of piecing these all things, this all together over a couple of days. This is before their Zoom days. Uh, they came in and and uh, spent a couple of weeks uh, in our in our space and and got the core of all of this was was uh, was built by them. It's really, it's, it, it was really amazing. And, and it's because we had a conversation of like, hey, I think we could do something bigger um, with what we're doing here. And it, and, um, uh, and it just slowly morphed from there and attracted an incredible team. Yeah, go ahead, Richard. Yeah, so, I mean, because they're members of the community and they reached out and said, we can do something big with this. And then that gets handed on to other members of the community when they, and you know, uh, a couple of Christmas ago, so Dennis and JJ and uh, Aaron and, uh, and Tlaloc and others kind of jumping in and going, okay, well, how do we, how do we take this to the next stage? And then other members of the community join and then that develops it to another stage. So that's how, you know, a system like this kind of grows is that people raise their hand and say, I want to get involved. How do I do that? And how can I help? How can I support and how can I help make something? And that's why it's magic. That's why it's it's been beautiful because it's growing out of those people who've said, I want to help and I think I've got an idea. Go ahead, Bill. Um, your next question, sorry. Now, Peter Belbin in Houston. Uh, if the entire office hours back in infrastructure were to be started again from scratch, what changes would people want to make? Go ahead, Jonas. I think I would want to write a spec for it first and then uh, build a... Uh, build more architecture for it and like build an architecture in code that allows you to grow, but at the same point allows something like Isadora to do what it's best, making decisions, but not being used as a database and needing to keep as much data. And then I probably also uh, would write more direct interfacing with hardware and uh, build more redundancy in and more control points. So we you have more uh, pinpoints where you know what is happening on that specific thing. Um, yeah, bring a lot more of the monitoring capabilities of a typical broadcast pipeline in. So being able to see CPU and uh, memory usage of all the systems at all time and having alerts for that. Um, yeah, 
when I do development, I have to, when I used to do development, I, I would write a program and then I throw all the, I'd write it, write it and get it kind of working, throw it all away. And then I would do it again and <laughs> write it again. And then I throw that all away. And then I'd write the program and we're still in the version one. <laughs> like we're just kind of like continuing to cobble those things together. So I think that we'll, you know, it's amazing how, how far we've taken this. And I think that we'll, there'll be some point in a year or so that we'll probably back up and go, okay, now we have this working the way we like it. And like, what, what do we do and how do we start with Greenfield and, and build out? Next question. Eduardo Augustine in Panama uh, says, how would beginners without the same budget and experience start an infrastructure like office hours? Go ahead, Tlaloc. I see three hands raised and I imagine there'll be three different answers. But um, I, um, I want to point out that in after hours, we're going to be doing a lab with Tony Mobley because Tony Mobley's infrastructure is going to be shifting. And we're going to utilize uh, Zoom, ISO, um, and Mimo Live with two Mac minis. And so there's going to be, this is a, a much simpler show. It's a much simpler format. And um, it, it's not exactly an analog to to your question's point, but it's a it might be an inter, inter, interesting thing to look at and see as as one option of how to do this. Go, Jonas. Yeah, I would say um, one thing that we we do a lot of things because we want the highest of and highest of qualities. In theory, you don't need five Zoom isopods. You could get along with one, get like two, three uh, full uh, resolution outputs and switch them behind the scenes and like get five or ten more outputs of the gallery view. I think you ca could achieve a lot of what we achieve with something like Companion. Um, and then maybe like a software switcher like vMix that allows you to build all these different layouts that we have easier than like we go the hard route. We have like a hardware and like another hardware and then you bring the hardware in again and you overlay something and then there's something below it. So like we like to choose the hard way often with this hardware stuff. So I think with like one vMix PC and then Sumaito rig and a bit of companion trickery, you probably could recreate 90% of this, and then you probably don't need to scale it up to 16. Go ahead, Richard. Yeah, I, I agree with my, my learned colleagues. Um, the the interesting thing about the system that, that's been developed is, yeah, it's aiming for a, a quite specific and quite hardcore spec. Um, it's you know it will probably before the end of a couple of years be even more high, hardcore, but it's all based upon um, accessible tools. So Sumiso is relatively inexpensive. Isadora is relatively inexpensive. So getting started with just one machine uh, that can that's powerful enough to run Sumiso and a, and, a, and a switcher on the same machine, or a couple of machines where they're networked together, uh, or a machine that's connected into an A10 Mini. You know, all of that is very accessible. So for for my work, we have two Mac Minis that I put into as an older um, a Blackmagic switcher, uh, and then we just you know that that services the design of most of our shows. It allows us a lot of flexibility. We don't do some of the pro pro programmatic things in Isidore because we're just looking to bring people in and we often design each show very bespoke. So we do different types of things with graphics. But a lot of time we also then use Universe to be able to bring in remote TDs and remote people controlling cameras. So there's lots of different things. You know, learn from the different elements that suit your workflow. Uh, and, uh, and if it doesn't suit for you or there's a, too, too much of a cost, then you know, there's plenty of other options uh, to, to get started at the beginning. 
And I've built kits like this, both in a Mac Studio with uh, Memo Live and just having everything go out of Siphon right into that. So that's all the video feeds. And then um, using, I've, I haven't used the hardware part yet, but the, the software of Soundesk to manage a bunch of audio and then feed that back into, into Memo Live. And so that's all kind of self-contained um, as far as how that goes. Um, the one that we're using for the Michael Krasny show right now is a, uh, I have an ATEM Extreme with SDI and then I have one Mac Mini with pumping the SDIs out into that. I like that just because it's got some hardware outputs and it's just easier for me to put put things in a couple, a couple different places uh, relatively easily to, to, to go out to monitoring. Um, and, that, and so both of those are much smaller than what we do here. And I, I like them because they're small and I can work on them you know, myself. So, so I do that as well. Next question. Douglas Carmichael, are there any JavaScript actors in the patch? Uh, go ahead, Tlaloc. So there, there are, and there have been from day one, um, because that's that's the way you that Andy designed it to serialize uh, the data that was coming in bitwise from Zoom OSC. But then, as time went on, more and more of that has happened because you can combine certain functions and make things a little faster or a little bit more. Um, uh, there, there's a larger logic tree that can happen there. Um, in some ways, that's that's problematic for when we're trying to just find where an issue is because it's not nodal anymore. Um, you know, you're you're coming in and out of um, of essentially code. Um, but uh, nevertheless, um, I think there's still plenty of nodal stuff that's working there. Um, and uh, and yeah, that's the answer that I've got. Jonas, I would say ninety eight percent of our business logic is in JavaScript actors. Nodal architectures mostly piping data around. I think the one uh, aspect where we ha still have a that where the control is fully nodal based is the active speaker, where we have like a delay and like the active speaker is a really nice piece where we take uh, advantage of the nodal design of Isadora. But for most of like SuperSource Creator and everything else, there's like a heavy amount of uh, JavaScript. Next question. David Hall wonders, what are the positives and or negatives of using a node-based interface like Isadora for control? Go, Jonas. I think the positive is the amount of people that can do it and how easy it is to get something going. Like, hey, I want AX, this thing to do this thing. You just draw a line. I think where I, I certainly know I get frustrated every time as soon as you try to do something 16 times like dragging 16 lines, I immediately am like, this should be a for loop. I want to do it in a for loop. Just give me code. Um, I think that's where the scalability starts to break. Um, and then I think nodal really is great when it is kept nodal. But like now with Isadora, you not only have JavaScript actors, we also have like user actors that is like a nodal thing that is hidden in a little box that is like, another nodal thing within it. And I think sometimes the observability really uh, suffers from that. Go to Um Yeah, um, I think that ex exactly what Jonas, exactly what Jonas just said, you know, the ability to see it versus the ability to do it quick, do it more efficiently. And I think that's kind of the, the positive and the negative. And for me, on a personal level, it's just my my left my my right hand because I utilize um, Isadora so often in my work. Next question, Narcisse Aklu, um, and the question is: I watched your video, and he's got a link there. Can you please tell me the gear used to get the sixteen boxes on screen, showing full screen with the lower third and so forth? 
go ahead, Lala. Yeah, so what we use is a MV16, um, and uh, and then um, we move use that in in a different in different orientations in the four by four, the three by three, the two by two, and then we in ME3 we overlay that with a bevel to give us the the graphics and the sort of um, rounded rounded corners that we like for the show. Next question. Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado. Since you might eventually be moving to HDR and at least 5.1 sound, do you think that bokeh in video is a passing fad or a permanent feature and that audio in 5.1 enables sound without bokeh, just as in a Kurosawa film is how it's in focus? Go ahead, Giannis. I think thinking of bokeh and sound is a really interesting concept of like it fades yeah. away and like there's something really magical about this. Um, I'm not sure 5.1 and HDR solves it though. Yeah, I, I think it's it's an interesting interesting thought. I do think that from a perspective, I don't think Boca is a fad. We've been using it for a long time. <laughs> so film has been using it for a long time. I think it's probably, it just allows us to focus our energy and, and it actually makes the things like Zoom work better because there's less data for it to manage. All right. We, uh, that was a great, great uh, second hour. Really well done, guys. And really, really, really appreciate you taking the time to, to walk us through uh, basically how that works. Uh, we'll come back to this every once in a while and, uh, and talk about it. Uh, I wanted to have one where we just kind of talk a little bit about how it works. We'll probably have an update in a couple months about where we're at and what we've done over the last you know six to eight months uh, of work. It's just an incredible amount of work that gets done every single week. There's little bits and pieces that are constantly changing. It's really an organism that just keeps keeps growing and keeps doing its thing. And so um, it's just really, really amazing work. Um, and so thank you to the, the incredible dev team uh, that, that, that has made this possible. And thank you to the production team that actually uses it and to the management team that that actually makes sure that we have content to put into all of those things. It's it's a it's a big team effort. Um, thanks to the panelists for all the great conversation, both in the first hour and the second hour. And thanks to the producers for all the questions, because this, this is a show that's done by us for us, because all of us in this show right now produce the show. So we, we're, we're depending on the questions, we're depending on the panelists, we're depending on our experts, we're depending on the dev team and the production teams and the management teams. And so we we kind of produce this as as a as a village. So thank to, thanks to everyone for the contribution. Reminder that tomorrow we'll have our first accessibility show. So we'll be talking about the etiquette of accessibility. Um, and we're pretty excited about that. So um, if you're interested in that, we're going to be testing ASL and a lot of other bits and pieces. And so it should be really interesting for a Saturday morning. I'll be there with the rest of the team as we kick that off. Um, we traveled 90,000 miles today. That's 145,000 kilometers and 717 million bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into After Hours. Something wrong with my computer. It, uh -oh. it crashed right before the show. <laughs> Not the, oh, the computer didn't crash. The monitors turned on and off. I, I've been doing all this changing around of the monitors. Suddenly I came up and everything was plugged. I was like... <laughs> And I was still in the in the meeting, but I couldn't figure out what was going on. So, Alex, you'll be happy to know I ordered my computer upgrade. It'll be here in 10 days. Outstanding. 10 days. What kind of Apple Store delivers something in 10 days? Well, it's a bill to order, so they're going to have to send it from China. Uh, what are you running now? An ancient 2019 MacBook Pro. Ah, uh, Intel. B before the M1s, I yeah. got an M2 and the new one, so that should up things a little bit. It's, it's you know, it's, it's really good at drawing and gauge.